You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association National Magazine. Hi, I'm your host, Eve Fagee, and the Editor-in-Chief of CBA National Magazine. Welcome to After the Pandemic, where we discuss emerging issues in law in a world transformed. Issues arising from environmental, social, and corporate governance, ESG, have been increasingly on the minds of corporate leaders over the last few years. When once corporate boards tended to focus more squarely on delivering shareholder returns, we're now seeing ESG more clearly identified as a priority by institutional investors on a global scale. The ideas that underpin ESG are not new, but a lot has changed, and in particular in 2018 when global investment management corporation BlackRock took a stand on sustainable investing. This is when BlackRock CEO uh, Larry Fink published an annual letter in uh, January 2018 urging the private sector to make societal impact a goal in addition to maximizing shareholder value. And that's the thing. Investors of all stripes aren't just signaling their virtue, they're also chasing the bottom line. The pandemic, too, has had many advocates saying that strong ESG practices have made companies more resilient in a very difficult environment. And now we're beginning to see ESG issues give rise to increased litigation, from shareholder lawsuits accusing uh, boards of not living up to their various disclosures, whether it relates to their diversity commitments or their sourcing and supply chain risks implicating human rights and child labor issues, for example, not to mention companies and their impacts on the climate. As such, these sustainable priorities are now increasingly finding their way into law. Now, to help us unpack the trends and help us understand how much of an impact ESG really is having on the business and legal world, we have Warren Ragunanen, who is with us today. He's one of the founding partners of Word LLP in Toronto, a fully virtual firm which builds itself as a values-based law firm serving enterprises and entrepreneurs invested in using the power of business to solve social and environmental challenges. Warren is a corporate lawyer whose practice is transaction-driven, and he's also the incoming chair of the CBA's national international law section. Welcome, Warren, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Eve. So how about you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do, how you got where you are, and what got you thinking about ESG through the lens of the law? Happy to happy to start there. Talking about me is hard because I usually don't spend a lot of time thinking about me. So how I actually started to get interested in these issues from law school, and I was a bit of a lone voice at that point. I had watched the documentary, The Corporation from 2003. It really started to get me thinking about what was wrong with our system that would give rise to this kind of corporate behavior. Because I got the feeling as I was studying the law and learning more about this, that um, sure, you had individuals who might be bad actors, but even the, the people who were acting in good faith and wanted to do something different seemed to be caught in a system that seemed exploitative in nature. It seemed like, yes, profit was important and efficiency was important, but it seemed that it was also having a, a, a difficult impact on people, on social systems, and on the planet. And I started to wonder, why, why is capitalism working this way? Especially if capitalism 
was determined to be the only economic system that worked because that's that's what the 20th century sort of taught us, right? That communism is not an option because it's just not possible. Then why is capitalism so broken? And, and, just, right? and just to interrupt you, the, the corporation was this Canadian documentary, right? That examining corporate business practices. And if I recall correctly, it was sort of done, the examination of this was by putting the, the corporation uh, literally on a, on, on, the couch, on a psychiatrist's couch, right? Yep. And, then, and it was diagnosed as a psychopath. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. All right. It was diagnosed with psychopathic tendencies. And they just made a sequel. A, the similar group that made the one in 2003, they, they, they called it the New Corporation, the Unfortunately Unnecessary Sequel. <laughs> and so they took a look at the developments in this area since 2003. And that took them into an exploration of the thing of, of corporate social responsibility, CSR, which is one of the many names that is given to this area in addition to ESG and social impact. And the, fun, the interesting part is, is that apparently the American Psychiatric Association has added one more line to the checklist for psychopathy, which is the ability to use charm <laughs> and the ability to be able to, to, to spin your activities as one of virtue. And it started looking at the CSR movement through that lens, right? With corporations essentially reacting to the first documentary saying, well, you know, we don't, we don't like being called psychopaths, uh, so we better do something about this. And the, the push of the, of the sequel is, well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take the CSR term and we're going to spin what we're doing as being virtuous and decent and that the corporation is, uh, you know, we can be forces for good. And so I thought that that was really interesting because that gets to this question of whether or not CSR or ESG is a real thing. And as lawyers, I think that's where we come in because I feel like we can, if, if, if they don't mean it, which I think there's a good chance that they don't really mean it, right? Okay. Then we as lawyers can say to them, all right, well, let's test how, how seriously you take this. You're going to be legally accountable for your CSR or your ESG initiatives. If you say you're going to do these things and don't do them, you can end up in court. You can end up being sued. It can cost you real money. If it's criminal, in some instances, you can end up in jail. Let's see how seriously you're, you're willing to take Is that part of the issue? Is it actually that is making the commitment to respect ESG or CSR standards, is that what gets companies, businesses in trouble when they don't meet the standards? Or is it beyond that? Well, I, we need to step back and ask ourselves, do companies really get in trouble, right? Because... You know, you mentioned in the intro that, that, that these cases have popped up recently, and it's true. But the, I would add to that that these cases have actually been happening for several decades in one way, shape, or form or another. I, I actually wrote a piece on, for, for the CBA's uh, Canadian International Lawyer a few years ago with... Uh, a case called Yaguaje v. Chevron, which involved terrible environmental destruction of the 
Texaco Oil Company of the Yucatan Peninsula and some horrible destruction of the Amazon rainforest and trampling on indigenous rights from the 1970s. And Chevron ended up acquiring Texaco and Chevron found itself on the bad end of a lawsuit for, for this brought by the, the people in the villages that were affected. And that lawsuit has been ongoing for a long time. It's, it's, it's a bit of a sordid tale and it, a lot's been written on it. But it's a great example of how these cases tend to play out, where you, you have some of these cases brought a few once every couple of decades. And, and I even remember dealing with this back in the 90s when I was in undergrad, uh, looking at shells activities in Nigeria, right? So, so I mean, we've, at least, we've had at least 40 years Right. And sometimes companies get away with it and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they lose. Sometimes they pay a big reputational cost. And so sitting here today in 2021, uh, if you're looking at a company and you're wondering what the legal risk is, it's really hard to say. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of like you're in a lot of trouble if you get caught, but it's really hard to catch you. And even if they do, there's not a lot they can do about it. And so the question has become, look, like, I'm not sure it makes any sense to try to convince companies that sustainability and CSR is the right way to go. Because I think it makes more sense to sort of build on the sort of CSR movement that's started. And regardless of whether or not they're embracing CSR in good faith, what you do is you say, okay, we'll take you at your word. If you truly believe in this, let's put this into your legal documents. Let's build these principles into the very DNA of the corporations that we're incorporating as lawyers and force you to work under these constrictions and see how seriously you're willing to take them. Is this the type of advice you're giving to your clients in, in, your, in your transactional business? Yeah, that's a lot of what we do. Because keep in mind, we're dealing with people who we don't have to convince. We're dealing with people who already strongly believe in this and want to figure are, are beyond this question of whether or not this makes sense to do and are interested in how do you do this. And can I ask, are they, are they, you know, are they growing companies? Are they uh, startups? Are they uh, midsize? What kind of, what kind of, what kind of profile do they have? They're mainly startups and growing companies. And that's kind of on purpose because I have a hypothesis and the hypothesis is that the large companies like the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, they're not going to really be able to make this change. They're too large. They're, they're, they're very, it's very much like trying to steer an oil tanker uh, and trying to turn, have it turn 180 degrees, right? It's just, it's, it, it's going to be very slow and very difficult. And, I'm not necessarily sure it'll even be successful. Whereas if you look at the small companies, if you build these principles into the very basic documents and principles from the very beginning, and if you have them build a corporate culture around a, a, a triple bottom line approach, a people, planet, profit approach, that then will attract the people who will take this seriously and then will indeed then try to to, to further these initiatives both within and outside the company. And then we as the lawyers can come in 
and start giving them the support and the infrastructure and the policies and the contracts that they need to fulfill that goal. And the hope is that if we get enough companies that are doing that and dealing with each other, we're able to build a sustainability ecosystem that we can then itself use the principles of capitalism to expand and grow until we have almost a parallel capitalist system that, that operates alongside the regular capitalist system that we all know. And we can see whether or not this stuff actually works. You know, it's funny because I think of Google that, you know, for a long time, you know, promoted this notion that it's, that its unofficial motto has been, don't be evil. And, and they actually removed it from their code of conduct, I think, a few, yeah, a few years ago. <laughs> Yeah, they did. They I mean, I, I do, do, do companies, when grow, do growing companies outgrow the, their, their more altruistic purposes? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because if that is, okay, if that's not true, if it's possible to be able to maintain the sort of sustainability framework throughout your company's life cycle, then it's simply a matter of looking at each company individually and seeing what, what they can do within their organization to change. I suspect, though, that it's something more than that. Mainly because I have no doubt that you have some of the largest corporations in the world with CEOs and corporate leaders who, have, who genuinely want to do better, but can't due to how the system seems to work, how capitalism seems to operate. And that becomes a much more interesting question. And uh, I, I think a much more important question, because then we need to ask ourselves, well, what is it about capitalism that promotes these horrible tendencies? And what can we do about it? As lawyers, we have an important role because at the end of the day, capitalism is a creation of law. Right? It's the, the entire free market system is grounded on the principles that all of us learned in our first year of law school, contract and private property, right? So if we as lawyers can understand the relationship between those legal principles and what's happening, climate change, lack of diversity, all of the, uh, the you know, human rights violations, then we have a role then to be able to, to surgically dissect and rework some of those rules to make the system more sustainable. The problem, of course, is that no one lawyer, no one human being really understands how the entire global economy works. It's too big and it's moving too quickly and there's too many variables. And there isn't even a computer in existence that could, that could map it out and, and and essentially match all of those variables and then present them to us in a way that we could understand. Well, I mean, so that's interesting because, you know, it's this whole sort of notion that from, I guess, Milton Friedman that, you know, the corporation should just pursue, you know, pursue profit and uh, stay focused. And that's, that's what counts. Don't worry about the rest, I guess. But, you know, a couple of years ago, there were debates around trying to redefine the corporation's purpose. And I'm wondering, you know, I understand that you have a certain amount of skepticism about that, but what is the way to hold corporate leaders accountable? Is it, is it law? You know, is it through the law that we need to do that? I, that, that question is a great question because 
law does serve some role in holding them accountable. And in fact, the statutes already exist to a large degree on that. The problem is, is that the statutes span so many different areas, right? That all of us as lawyers don't have a full appreciation. So you do have, for example, environmental statutes that could hold directors and officers personally liable and accountable, right? For failure to for failure to 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 to, to oversee operations properly and cause hazardous waste to, to spill over. There are certainly statutes that make directors and officers personally liable for failing to pay employee wages. That, that's in the CBCA and the OBCA. There are the Income Tax Act is rife with powers given to the Canada Revenue Agency uh, to hold directors and officers personally liable for failure to properly pay taxes. There's another statute called the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act that, you know, if you bribe somebody abroad, you can be charged criminally in Canada. And so the accountability is there. It's just not all in one place. And that's just the legal accountability, right? Just remember, capitalism operates on the principle of competition. And you, the accountability to consumers for the products that you make are based on, on, on being able to outcompete other industries or other businesses in the same field and make a better product. In addition to the basic legal requirements of, of you know, the product not being dangerous and meeting certain minimum standards. And so there's a lot of accountability all over the place. The thing is, I don't think we understand it fully. I don't think all of that knowledge is comprehensively together in a way that we can apply it to say, okay, we have this problem of climate change. We have corporations all around the world that are contributing to carbon emissions. We have an oil and gas sector that is doing this. How do we use the existing law to decarbonize the economy. We don't know how to do that because the law in this area is so vast. And complex. It is. So, you know, we talked a little bit about how ESG is the new CSR and that, you know, these notions aren't necessarily new. But, you know, what is different about ESG today compared to predecessor trends? Or is is it just the same thing? or has the environment changed? What's different today or what's the same? So let me take it back. When when, when I say this is not new, right? I I mean that this this debate is close to a century old, right? In fact, you might argue that the abolitionist movement from the 19th century was the first attempt to... To, uh, the elimination of slavery was done through advocacy and an attempt to change the way business is done, right? But th- that might be a bit of a stretch. What, what we do have, though, is we have a debate between a couple of law professors, Professor Adolf Burl and Professor E. Merrick Dodd in the 1930s. Burl was a professor at Columbia Law School. Dodd was a professor at Harvard Law School. And Burl and Dodd have a very famous academic exchange over direct liabilities and the proper role of a corporation. Burl originally took the position of shareholder primacy. Dodd took the position that, no, you can't, it can't be shareholder primacy. Uh, you, the, the board has to balance the needs of different stakeholders. 
dollars, right? And which 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 is sort of being reflected in the laws and the approaches of today. In fact, the Canada Business Corporations Act was recently amended last year in 2019 to essentially codify what was originally Dodd's point of view. Like a good lawyers, Eve, they debated for a while and they managed to convince each other and then they switched sides and then they started to debate each other again on different sides and this by the way was all before milton friedman and before before the idea that that you know the only the only responsibility of the corporation is profit so this what has happened today is that that academic debate has left academia right we actually have people in business and in business schools starting to think about this a little bit more, right? I would argue, and in fact, that is kind of the premise of which our firm exists, is that we're not going far enough, not, not because of lack of will, but because this is such a hard problem that it's just difficult to figure out what to do, right? But what I'm finding today is that there is a very, very large contingent of people who sort of understand these issues and kind of in good faith want to move forward and figure out how to deal with it. Now, granted, there are also those who are very skeptical, but, and, and you know, they, I, I run into them occasionally and they challenge me to convince them that this is a good thing. And I just don't want to, right? I think, you know, it should be supremely obvious that, that the way our economic system works is completely unsustainable. Right? Like the way our impact is on this planet is completely unsustainable. And you can draw a very direct line between capitalism and between climate change and all of the other issues that are impacted by how we do business. Right? And so I am way past having the debate about shareholder privacy versus the stakeholder approach onto what do we do about it? And the thing to answer your question that I find that's changing is that there's a lot of people who are right there with me. Okay, well, that's interesting. But, you know, th there is still the issue of shareholder primacy that's that's still there. You know, uh, it's not all shareholders who are going to be pushing for different goals beyond profit beyond profit maximization. Mm -hmm. And I mean, would you say that shareholder is shareholder primacy still a problem? Oh, yeah. Right. And, and, <laughs> the, and the, the best part about shareholder primacy is that there's no law, at least that I'm aware of, or that I've seen, or that I've come across in my research, that says, board of directors, thou shalt make shareholders prime, right? Thou shalt maximize returns and make sure that you give shareholders a dividend. In fact, most corporate law, if, if it's not silent, is, is, is quite frankly, quite explicit about who gets dividends and who doesn't and, and what discretion directors have to declare them, right? So it's funny, there's a professor uh, who has since passed away. Her name was Professor Lynn Stout at Cornell Law School. She wrote an entire book on this. It's called The Shareholder Value Myth. I read Professor Stout's book and it was eye-opening for me. It also saved me a lot of time in research because she had done all the research for me, right? And in essence, what she argued was, there's nothing in corporate law that says that you have to give shareholders preferential treatment that you have to maximize returns, right? But it seems to be this sort of accepted wisdom. It seems to be this very weird interpretive principle that seems to be hanging over 
business regulators like a ghost that nobody seems to be able to get rid of. Why is that? Why do you think? I think it's I think it's a it's a it's a cultural as opposed to a legal phenomenon, right? I think that it's a, a paradigm, a way of thinking that seems to seems to invite people to conclude that shareholder primacy is somehow obvious without actually questioning whether or not that so-called obviousness of it has any authority behind it. And that's, that is a problem that is squarely a legal problem. That is something that we as lawyers need to be able to, to strenuously argue, right? We've got the case law, we've got the principles, we can say, look, like shareholder primacy isn't a thing and it's killing the planet and it's hurting people. So let's, how about we just stop that, right? Like put, put that principle to rest, understand that corporations have to balance multiple stakeholders, right? In addition to the shareholders who are a stakeholder, right? There's, I'm not standing here telling you that corporations have to behave like charities. Profit is still important. What I am saying though, is that there is a triple bottom line to borrow the, the approach from a, a mid nineties book called Cannibals with Forks. Um, which, which introduced this concept of people, which is social returns, planet, which is environmental returns, and profit, which is financial returns. Three legs of the stool. You can't, you can't give preference to one or else the stool falls over. And that's what's been happening. And so just quickly before we sort of start concluding, but the, you know, how would you redefine? So, if there's no shareholder privacy uh, primacy, and I, I understand you're talking about a balanced approach, yes. You know, how would you redefine the shareholders' rights vis-a-vis -vis the corporation? Then, well, the shareholders' rights don't have to be redefined. They're actually pretty well defined as it is, right? For a, for a hundred years, the shareholders are passive investors, right? Your job as a shareholder is to hand the corporation a bunch of money. And then the directors are supposed to take that money, hire a CEO, give them a budget, and then get that CEO to basically develop a product and sell it, right? And you as a shareholder have extremely limited rights to, to, to micromanage what the directors do and, and to micromanage what the CEO does, right? You are, you're entitled to, to vote, you're entitled to show up at a meeting. You're entitled to certain documents. You're entitled to sit at that meeting and have financial statements presented to you, right? But beyond that, there's not a lot that you're supposed to be doing. And you're certainly not entitled to dictate to the, to the board how much money you should be allowed to take out of the corporation, right? Because the it is a fundamental role of a board of directors to look at the entire corporate operations as a whole and be able to determine, okay, well, you know, we can give the shareholders a dividend because it won't impact our cash flow, but we might want to keep other money here because we want to invest here or we want to hire here or we want to do, do whatever, right? And that's kind of, that, those legal sort of checks and balances, that relationship between the shareholders, the board and the officers, is kind of reflected in capitalism as a whole, right? Because the whole idea behind a free market is that the government, the government creates a framework around which businesses can operate without hurting people, 
right? Like, you know, consumer protection law and environmental protection law and employment standards and all that stuff, right? But the government doesn't interfere too much in the day-to-day of what the boards and the CEOs and the officers are trying to deal with, right? And so, so shareholders don't have a role in saying anything really to the board members. If they don't like what they see, they can always vote out the board and put in different board members or they can put in themselves, right? But, but when you're simply sitting down with a shareholder hat, you know, telling boards, hey, you have to do this. It's like walking into the prime minister's office and saying, I'm a taxpayer, so I demand that you pass this, this, and this legislation. Like, it just doesn't work. So, but by, by that logic, would should shareholders, I guess shareholders shouldn't have the right either then to hold executives and, and directors to account on, you know, you know, curbing their climate impacts or, you know, making sure that they're not sourcing their chocolate from child labor workers in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Well, they don't have to sue directors. If, if, the, if, the, if the corporations are engaged in those types of terrible labor practices, right? I mean, suing, like, maybe an option if there's specific losses that the company's incurred, or if the company has breached certain laws and as a result you've got regulators laying criminal charges and things like that, right? But those are... Those are really intended as extraordinary remedies, right? The real common remedy is if, if, if you've got a board and CEOs who are doing that, you're supposed to kick them out and replace them with people who know how to do, do a job without hurting people. Then how do we curb the worst instincts of shareholder primacy? Is there a legal way to do it? How do we get rid of shareholder primacy? <laughs> <laughs> That's a million-dollar question, isn't it? I've asked you two million-dollar questions. Yeah, you've asked a couple. You, you've, you've doubled your value in, in the last 20 minutes. How do we get rid of shareholder premises? Well, I think we can start by calling it out when we hear it. I, I can tell you that when I, was watching, when I was watching the Corporation sequel, in a few of the documentaries, at least three of the interviewers just kind of threw out, oh, corporations are legally obligated to... to make shareholders prime and pass returns to shareholders to the to the exclusion of everyone else. And they just kind of threw that line out there and then moved on to talk about all the other things that were happening. And I think step one should be when we hear that, we need to stop them and say, no, that's, that's not the case, right? The law is changing around that or has changed around that because we know that it doesn't work, right? We also sort of need to engage with regulators around this issue, right? Securities commissions and competition tribunals and all of the regulators around that who sort of hold this view as self-evident when it's not really self-evident, in fact, not really a thing at all. It's just a phantom. So as we, as we, as you catch your eyes to the, to the future, where do you see this ESG movement going? You're obviously a part of it. You've, you've obviously dedicated your practice to some underlying principles. So I, I guess you have, a, you have good confidence that this is, this is a thing of meaningful purpose you know, moving forward. So where, where, how do you see this thing evolving? Okay, so I think this movement needs to succeed. It, like, it, it is, because there is no alternative, right? 
The alternative is doing what we do right now, which clearly isn't working, right? And so the idea is maybe my hypothesis is wrong, right? Maybe it's, it's not small businesses that create an ecosystem that will solve this problem. Maybe there'll be some sort of regulation that solves this problem. Maybe I'm completely off about large businesses and they will figure out some sort of miracle to be able to reform what they do. Who knows? I, I think... It's, it, the first part of it is that it's not going away. That, that, that is for sure, right? This movement, it's been around for a long time and it'll continue to be around. It might not, it, it, it grows very slowly, which is the reason why people keep on saying that it's new, despite, despite decades of being around. And that slow growth will probably continue until there's a critical mass, a tipping point of people that want to put the time and energy in to figure out how to truly make it progress really quickly. And I, I don't, my sense is, I mean, looking at, looking at this stuff for the last 15 years, that tipping point is approaching. I couldn't tell you though, whether we'll be here in five or 10 or 15 or 20 years. What I do know is that I'm just gonna keep hammering away at it and trying to get as many, many people in my network and on board as I can and try, and, 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 and by the way, when I mean, I mean everyone, right? Because this problem of sustainability goes way beyond the legal profession, right? Every single human being on this planet has a stake in this. And all of us have a role to play using whatever skills we have to try to make this work. And I mean, one of the things that really gives me hope is the amount of startups and new businesses that are out there now, right? Like there's a movement, there's a movement in the States called the B Corp. The, the, the movement is run by a nonprofit based in Pennsylvania called B Labs. They do have a branch here in Canada that's, that's based at Mars. And the B Corp movement is all about creating a certification system for corporations that want to make these principles part of their governing documents and want to build this into their operation at the ground level, right? And this movement's growing. And one of the reasons why it excites me is, is because it's the first movement that I've seen that has some, some very solid metrics to actually measure, you know, what, what people are doing. It's got an auditing system in place. It's a, it's a start, scratches the surface, but it's a good start. And there's a lot of work to be done to build on what they're doing. I mean, there have been in the past, we've seen like ISO certifications and stuff like that. Yes. How, is it, how is this any different? Well, for one thing, it it's, I'm not as familiar. I know of the existence of the ISO certifications, but I'm more familiar with the B Corp certification, which is number one, it's built on an online list of questions with a 200 point score, which you have to get a minimum of 80. And so, and it's open to everybody that wants to do it. There's self-reporting involved and, and there's a sliding scale in terms of fees, which the smallest companies can, can participate in this for 500 bucks, all the way up to very, very large companies where the fees are substantially more, right? And so this, has been at least from what I've seen much more accessible than ISO, right? And 
in addition to in addition to the like sort of nuts and bolts of how the certification works there's actually a lot of excitement around it like the people who are in it like they have events there's a community there's networking the people who are in it are proud to be in it right they're proud to be able to stand up and say that I'm a B corp and 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 there are some very large prominent companies that are in it including Ben and Jerry's including including actually here the business development bank of canada and so this this is more than just simply something that you that you stick on uh, beside your logo this is actually this actually has a culture to it this actually has people excited to be part of it more so than i saw with iso last question for you how has covid you know impacted this whole issue in your view has it has it had an impact at all is this just a generational thing or or has covid in fact shown esg to be uh, something resilient or and something resilient uh, something resilient companies need to follow hmm. i don't know i'll be blunt with you on that one i don't know i don't know yet because esg or triple bottom line or however you want to call it it's the struggle there is figuring out how to take these principles and make them concrete right whereas covid is already concrete right it's very real it's already impacting all of us right so how covid has slowed this down or created obstacles is probably not something we're going to know until the pandemic's actually over and we're doing uh an after action review of covid's impact on sectors across the board and we can we can we can you know draw some lines between okay pandemic hit you know here's for example how many companies were certified as b corps here's how many companies lost their certification here's the activities that's been going on i mean but beyond the general okay nobody's meeting right this might be this might be considered lower priority compared to just simply business survival right um, that's a hard one to that's a hard one to answer because it involves a prediction of the future and uh, that's i'm terrible at that so is everybody yeah. <laughs> Predict yeah. It, predicting the future is hard. Listen, on that note, uh, Warren, I think we're, we're going to have to end the interview. But I do want to thank you for joining us today. That was a, that was a fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks for helping us put ESG in a larger context of you know economic history, as well as you know even the changing liability landscape. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today. <laughs> thank you. It, uh, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, I, I can talk about this stuff all day. I'm, I'm glad you put a time limit on that. <laughs> so good. Uh, thanks again. I've been talking with Warren Ragunanen of Word LLP in Toronto. Thank you to all of you who have listened to us, and I uh, hope you'll join us next time. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and to hear us in French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if, if you have any comments, feedbacks, and suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. And check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. A big, big thank you to our podcast editor, Anne-Catherine Desulmet. And thank you all for listening to this month's episode of After the Pandemic. We'll catch you next month. Thank you.